All right, welcome everybody. Uh, this week we're going to talk about uh, a classic among classics, uh, Jonathan Demme's 1991 Silence of the Lambs. Welcome, Peter. Good evening. <laughs> was that your was that your Hannibal Lecter? Good evening. <laughs> no, that was my uh, Bella Lugosi. Hello, Peter. which. Bill Lugosi was was scary, like you know, sixty years earlier, and not so scary when they made Silence of the Lambs. But Anthony Hopkins defined the new scary in this movie. He did. He did a sort of a sort of erudite gourmand scary. Right, cold, um, sort of um, inscrutable serial killer, and and smarter than everyone around him. Yep, smart and very difficult to figure out. I don't know if we need to do a summary of this movie. I mean, I imagine almost everybody listening has seen it. Do you want to do a summary still? I don't know. Well, maybe if you're like a loser, you didn't. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Maybe then you haven't seen it. I mean, look, this movie, uh, it's um, it's about an FBI trainee who's just sort of finishing up her time in the academy, played by Jodie Foster, who gets recruited sort of as bait, mostly as just someone interesting to talk to, to go talk to a famous serial killer who's been in prison for eight years, who's a very intelligent former psychiatrist named Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins. And she goes to speak to him, and they have several interactions. And eventually she... With some of with his help to some extent, figures out where or sort of stumbles on the the actual killer they're looking for currently in the crime, uh, the the series of crimes, and has a you know has a shootout sort of at the end and wins. And at the same time, Hannibal Lecter ends up escaping. So uh, that's the story. But sort of the core of the story really is, in many ways, the interaction between between Hannibal Lecter and Jodie Foster's character, Clarice Starling. Right. I mean, and much of the movie is a, a vehicle for them to have conversations. I mean, I mean, the, right. the core of the movie are the, the three or four scenes where they meet and talk, which I think that he has about 20 minutes of screen time in the whole movie yet, you know, I, you know, watching it again, you know, like, it's hard to know who's the star. Is it her or is it him? I mean, this is the career-defining role for both of them. Right, and deservedly. Right. I mean, like, neither he nor she will ever top this. No. I you mean, what a, what a combination. I mean, this, like you said, this, this film's really, it's, it's become really a classic. It's really a sort of a genre defying movie it's an inflection point it's it's a genre starting movie right i mean like we're living 25 26 years later in the in the post silence of the lambs world i mean everything is a ripoff of silence of the lambs now i mean there's i was just i was sort of making a short list and i came up with about 15 films that are essentially a ripoff of this and that's mm. a short list. I mean, I don't, I'm not including B-grade movies. And, you know, there's a, you know, CSI, CSI Miami, CSI Scranton, CSI St. Paul, <laughs> you know, CSI, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Honolulu. Cleveland. You know, I mean, like the whole world got obsessed with forensics after this. 
Um, and and all of those are really just. They're just basically wannabe Silence of the Lambs. Like, About no one's profiling. ever really done it better or in a more exciting way. Boy, that's an understatement. I mean, all those examples, I'd rather chew on broken glass than watch any of those. Right, but I mean, what, I mean, before this, right, there's Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, right? Hmm. Which is 1986. There's Manhunter, which we'll have to talk about. Right. I but, forgot about man. You know, there's there's not a lot of other films that sort of Michael look at Mann. The, right, that sort of look at the mechanics of a serial killer and how he could potentially be caught. Like there's a, I guess, you know, and I guess obviously there's Psycho, but mm-hmm. you know, it's like, not really a serial killer movie though. Well, I don't know. I mean, he he is sort of a serial killer. Uh, yeah, but there's not many. I guess my point is there's not many of these films. You know what I'm saying? And then after this and you know, not only does this film inspire a million ripoffs, it inspires its own ripoffs in the in the in the in the way that they made Hannibal into a TV series, which you know, it's, I hear it's okay. I haven't seen it. You know, yeah. they made they made several sequels to this, and they even yeah. remade Red Dragon, and none of those really kind of you know, they never caught lightning in a bottle again. Nope. And. Um... This this movie had a certain alchemy with their performances that was done. It just it reached that that highest level of filmmaking in a way. You know that there was something about the way that they the the casting, the way that they appreciated the characters, and I'm sure the direction and the way. You know, the way they shot it to a certain extent, but really they they really had a particular take on the characters that came across making them incredibly interesting. And they live in a complex world and, and with the exception of Chilton, they all come off right. as fairly complex individuals. He sort of is the lone sort of like one dimensional buffoonish character in the movie. And right. even for example, people who have relatively little screen time, like for example, Barney, right? Yeah, Barney exactly. who is uh, played by um is it Frankie Fazan? No, yeah, Frankie Fazan. You know, he has a small role in this, yet he's very memorable. You know, like like right. a lot is hinted at. Some of that's fleshed out in the other movies, but a lot is hinted at in his relationship with Lecter. And like for example, I think someone who doesn't get a lot of credit in this movie is Scott Glenn, who plays Jack Crawford. You yeah. know, like that's a fairly complex part too. And in the same way that, you know, Lecter isn't a sort of perverse way a father figure to to Jodie Foster's Clarice Starling, so is Scott Glenn's Jack Crawford, you know, like she's she's looking for sort of a male figure in this, not necessarily to have sex with, but, you know, to replace her dad. Yeah. And he's he's her goal, you know, like she's she idolizes him. And that's clear in the movie. In the book, there's sort of a hint that they might be physically involved, but it's been a long time since I read the book. I don't remember definitively. I remember um, from the books that this this movie was sort of cobbled together from more than one book, from what I remember, no, wasn't no, it? No, this is this is it one really book. just it just follows Silence of the Lambs. It's just one book, yeah. Um, it's funny because the night I, I had never heard of uh, you know Thomas Harris or these books. I had seen Black Sunday, which he also wrote, but I didn't realize mm-hmm. that this was the same writer. By the way, we should do Black Sunday sometime. Um, 
And uh, I, I saw this movie with a friend. I walked in cold, you know, like everybody else in America. I was awestruck by it. And I came home to discover that the book was in our house. Uh, and <laughs> one of my roommates had already read it, of, you know, like a year or two before. And I came home from the movie and I read the book that night in one shot. So I saw the movie and I read the book in the same evening. Mm. Um, it's a pretty quick read. Right. Um, and, then, you know, and again, it, it's worth pointing out that, you know, when the, when this came out, 99% of America didn't know that this was a sequel. This is the sequel to Red Dragon. Right. Which 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 really first introduces us to to Hannibal Lecter. And Jack right. Crawford is in that as well. And that one, the 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 protagonist is an FBI uh, agent or investigator named Will Graham, who we could talk about a little bit. Um, but the movie started off with this for whatever reason. They they picked this screenplay. And, um, and presented this first, and right? It was and again, pretty self-contained, you know, as a, as a story for the, for a movie. And you didn't really have to see or read Red Dragon at all to enjoy this. And they they really don't even mention it, other than you know, there's sort of an allusion to Lecter's crimes, you know, and Lecter having worked with the agency, sorry, with the FBI before. But beyond that. You don't need it. There's no mention of Will Graham in this movie at all. No. I mean, it's really it's a standalone story in and again, the picture. And again, I think we can't go too far into this podcast without also talking about how this movie is also about a woman in the world of men. I yep. mean, this movie is sort of drenched from top to bottom um, in, in sort of Clarice's isolation as a lone sort of functioning female in a world, you know, both both criminals and lawmen of all males just you know i mean and even some of the very very first shots in the movie you know that shot of her in the elevator you know she is surrounded by men she is surrounded by men at the funeral uh for frederica bimmel she's uh, she's literally surrounded by men and used as a punching bag in one scene where she's training at the FBI, where they're all, she's holding that cushion and they're circling her and throwing punches at her. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that was a little less than subtle, Jonathan Demi, but, but, you know, some of this is about, you know, she manages to sort of combine strength and vulnerability in a very sort of appealing way in one character. Right. And, and the other thing to me that's really notable about this movie is to me, this movie is the sort of, the penultimate example of a really good movie that's really well made and is also poppy at the same time. You know, it's not it's not an art house film. It's not obscure, but you know, it's no, a it's great very movie. Accessible. Very, very mainstream, accessible. but but really good. And there there's really not that many like that. You know that are no, really it's hard that to are really off. good. Right, you yes. can be you can be fish or fowl. You Correct. know, this is kind of both. Right, and and for that reason alone, it sort of stands in a very small category. But you know, for many other reasons, it's just a uh, it's a it's a big film in in the history of filmmaking for sure. One of the things I really like about this is its use of restraint, like like. There's not a ton of gore in this movie. There's a lot of suggestion or hints, or when you see something, you see it in a very fleeting manner. Like, this is not a gore movie. Like, the camera does not 
linger too much on the horror. And, and I think, for example, like, you, you know, you either are told things and left to imagine them or you see them, you know, just for a, a lot of the shots of the gore, a second or, you know, maybe a second and a half. And like, for example, I think right. one of my favorite bits in the movie is when Chilton is a... a addressing Clarice about how to handle him. Do not approach the glass. Do not touch the glass. Do not hand him any right. paper. Take the pa- take the paper clip and the staple out of it. And he tells right. that story of the attack on the nurse. Right. And he shows her the photo and you don't see it. You, you don't know? see it. And it's also right before she, her first meeting with, um, with Lecter. And it sets the whole thing up. I mean, it's seconds before her meeting. And right, then, and as, know, they're, that, as they are literally and figuratively, you know, descending into Hades, essentially. Yeah, he clearly is on the. It's not exactly the ward with you know where the well-behaved people are are stationed. You know, it's 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 right. the rough bottom. Yeah, this is not so, orange. Is the new black? It's sub basement twelve. You know, and like <laughs> right, the, 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 the sunlight people. has not been seen since the building was constructed down there. Yeah, none of those people have been out of the cell for a long time, and he even says I, that he's been in that cell for eight years without right. leaving. And they will, and he, and he is sort of wise enough to know that they'll never let me out. Right, and um, right, and he sees his chance essentially. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, his cell, you know, his cell is done in a different way than all the other cells. All the cells are dark, and his cell is light. You know, mm-hmm. and, and he's too dangerous to even have bars. Right, he's you got know, he's, he's got thick plexiglass with a uh, a food dr- you know a bank teller drawer that they can put stuff back and <laughs> forth through. That's funny. I wouldn't have thought of it as a bank teller drawer, but that's exactly what it is, like a pass through yeah. drawer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I think that you know a lot is riding on the first time that they meet, and from the movie. And, you know, I don't know how many takes they did or how, how, how much planning they did, but it all paid off. And that scene sets the tone for all of their interactions. You know, the fact yep. that she's always honest with him, you know. Right. And even the know? shot, you know, which is famous now where right after her lecture from Chilton about how to be careful and what a disaster, how incredibly dangerous he is. Um you know, there's that that shot where she first sees him, and he's standing there by himself in the cell. Right, and he's disarming looking shot. after seeing these these other guys who sort of look like what you're expecting. He's, you know, he's not that imposing a figure, and he's sort of got a a bland smile on his face. I actually, um, I actually listed that as the best shot in the movie. I wrote first shot Me of too. Hannibal Lecter. I said that's the best shot in the whole movie. I um, agree. And, you know, Supposedly and he, that was uh, that was Anthony Hopkins that said make him stand there quietly. I don't know. That's suppose that's well, what and and in he's, interviews I've heard him say that he's almost more menacing for his calmness and gentility. He's right? much more menacing, just sort of standing there waiting for her arrival than he would be if she kind of just happened upon him and he were lounging around, or if he were sort of scratching at the glass or looking. Uh, obviously deranged he's this much is, this scarier is, this way right and this is also their most sort of um i don't know kind of combative meeting right um you know he he's clearly insulted at the idea that jack crawford sent a trainee to interview me you know at first he's skeptical about who she is and then when he realizes that she is telling the truth that you know she is in fact a trainee like like 
he's put off by that. Right. And he sort of, he, he lays into her at one point, which, and, and then she takes it really well. He says, you know, you're with your crappy shoes right, your and, good bag you know, and your cheap shoes, cheap shoes. And you're, you know, straight out of the West Virginia coal mines. And, you know, he's right, extremely, and he dismisses her. Fly, fly, right. fly now, little starling. Fly, fly, right. fly. I've got, to, I've got to fight the urge to lapse into my Hannibal Lecter impression. <laughs> Um, well, that's the also the uh, I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. You know, it's a shame too because that line has been sort of parodied so much it's lost all impact. I know, but it had you know, tremendous the first impact time at you the heard time. It, you were like, "Oh crap!" Now you're right, just like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." They talk. Of, they make a couple references to the fact that he Hannibal the, that he ate his victims, Hannibal the cannibal, whatever. Some of, they make a couple of oblique references to it, but then he directly addresses it to her just to shock her. Right. Although you know he's he's wrong. Like she says to him, you know, you know, most serial killers, you know, keep souvenirs. He says I didn't. She says no, you were yours. But that's not really true. He did kind of keep a souvenir if he made the victim part of his body. Like I was thinking like, Hey, right. that's not strictly true. He did sort of keep a souvenir, even if it was in the form of amino acids, you know, <laughs> carbohydrates <laughs> and fats. Well, maybe he um, made like pickled tongue. And then when she, you know, when she has obviously the encounter with the, the prisoner Migs who throws semen at her, um, you know, you don't know when she, it very quickly cuts to her sort of outside out in the fresh air. As she's you know going to her car. Like, is she upset because, the episode with Migs, is she upset because Lecter insightfully kind of sussed her out in seconds or both? Like, which was mm -hmm. more upsetting, the incident with the semen or, or or Lecter sort of, you know, very, very quickly assessing her? There's a bit in one of the books, I forget which one, where, where Clarice realizes that you don't have to like somebody to figure them out. And, and that, that's kind of what he did to her. Right. I mean, he he's obviously uh not just professionally but preternaturally able to figure everything about out about a person and within seconds and he does and he demonstrates it to her very very vividly in that first meeting i mean not just the way he smells and says you know the sort of sherlock holmes style he says well you wear this skin cream and you sometimes wear layer duton but not today right and you know i mean it's straight out of, of uh, arthur conan doyle right but then he he does that superficially, but then he also really gets at her character, and she, she, because she's so honest, sort of. I mean, she, she's an interesting character because she realizes that she's had a tough time, and she's part way adjusted to it, you know, because she's able to, she's able to be open about things that maybe are not um, are difficult to be open about. Especially with a guy who's who's in you know who's in sub basement twelve and who's a, an absolute you know incredibly dangerous person. <laughs> sub basement right? twelve. You, by the way, you should see sub basement thirteen. Jesus, <laughs> if you think this thing is bad, uh, that's where the alien. They keep the alien. Yeah, I mean, so, she, I, so what's next? Um, by the way, does she drive a Pinto? Like, I was trying to tell, was that yeah. a Pinto? It She's looks got like a, a Pinto. Dump. I mean, she clearly is is sort of uh, is, yeah, is early in her career. Doesn't make a lot of money. Doesn't have anything. She's striving. She wants to work for um, Scott Glenn in the in the psychological right, in the profile. Science. 
Right, and she knows she knows him from college. He must have taught a class for her in college. Right, they, they say that he remembers her, and um, so she um, she's you know she's striving, but at the same time as striving, she she has her own interests, and she's clearly interested in Lecter and in in criminal. Right. Right, and, and she correctly sees this as a chance to impress Crawford, and she doesn't figure out right away that she's being used by Crawford. Not at all. He plays you know? her like a harp. Well, and Crawford knows that if he had gone in there to talk to Lecter, he would have gotten nothing. Right. right. Remember, too, Jack Crawford is part of the reason Lecter's in prison. Right. He caught him. Yeah. Well, no, so. Will Graham caught him. Right. Will Graham caught him. Um in uh, in Red Dragon, there is discussion of it, um, right? I think yeah, they 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 do it kind of in um, flashback, kind of where they describe it. It's already in the past at that point, right? Right, yeah. Lecter is uh, in Red Dragon. There there are similar exchanges with sort of reaching out to to Lecter, although Lecter in Red Dragon actively helps the killer in in that novel, Francis Dolerhide. Right. Um, there's a great exchange. I, Thomas Harris is an interesting guy. Uh, I mean, almost every, I think everything he's ever written has been made into a movie, but there's a great exchange in, in Red Dragon where Will Graham is visiting with Lecter, and Lecter says to him, do you think you're smarter than me? And Will Graham says, no. And and Lecter says, but you caught me. And he goes, yeah, but I'm not smarter than you. And then Lecter says, well, how did you catch me? And Will Graham says, well, you have disadvantages. And Lecter is kind of insulting, says, well, what disadvantages do I have? And Will Graham says, well, you're insane. <laughs> <laughs> and like like Lecter can't really argue like ah touche you know, <laughs> um, they don't show Lecter by the way ever being insane in this movie with the possible exception of when he's violent well, and even, well he, he's not in, he's, he's cruel like he's cruel and vicious like he's cruel to the senator right he's yes. cruel to the senator uh, and like the he, cops he enjoys her suffering. Like he sort of takes a moment to sort of, sort of enjoy the fact that she's missing her daughter who might be dead or, or killed imminently. Uh, and he does sort of like when he, when he uses the billy club and beats the cop, you can sort of imagine he's like, this is eight years of anger at people who have locked him in cages coming out. Right, and um, that cop's nothing but fair to him. So I think his cruelty, like to the senator and all, I think that could be explained by bitterness, almost. You know, bitterness and boredom. But he does clearly kind of relish beating that cop that to death. Cop. And the yeah. cop, who by the way was all was clearly was not like Chilton was not a sadist, uh, and, right, and, and was treated probably him fairly. But you know, that's what fairly. I mean. That's what I mean. He just became everybody. Like when he finally got that chance. By the way, yeah. you know, uh, before we get too far afield, it's worth um, mentioning that Jack Crawford is based on a real person. So Jack Crawford is John Douglas, uh, right. who really who wrote headed, a bunch of books. Right, he headed the behavioral science unit at, at Quantico. I read all the books; they're they're pretty good. Although, you know, um, he makes the point in a lot of the books that you know most of the serial killers they never caught, um, right? And, they, and he thought that they got a small fraction of them. Right, and, and the other thing that was interesting is remember he said they always drove a blue or a black van. Yeah, that's why that's remember why that? the, the serial killer in this has a van. He always talked about the van as like the serial killer mobile. 
Right. And they were always like blue or black, man. I remember like I listened to his book on tape, like uh, Douglas's book book or books. I don't remember the amount of any I listened to. They're but very I listened similar. To they tape. all overlap. Right. They're all the same. And they were all him profiling different serial killers from, from the past. And he just, it's almost the same script a lot of times over and over. It's pretty funny. <laughs> I like the way that he talked about how they caught some of the real ones. And a lot of times they could kind of trick them into revealing themselves or they would do something clever, like manipulate the media to get the guy to reveal himself or figure out who he was. There's one of them where a guy was like raping women serially. And he left a note at one of the places saying like, he'll never catch me. And they put the note on giant billboards. They were like, do you know the person who wrote this note? Look at this funny handwriting. And like a million (laughs) people called in and said, it's this guy, you know, like, like if that was done in a television show, you'd be like, Oh, that's not so interesting. But the fact that they did it in real life is super interesting. Mm hmm. He had a, I think he had a heart attack in real life. Like, I think there's a bit in one of the books where he collapses from sort of nervous exhaustion and has to sort of back off his career. But anyway, but back to the movie. Um, So she, so, so Lecter gives her a hint, right, that leads her to the storage facility uh, where she finds uh, the lipstick and eyelash and false eyelash wearing head of none other than Benjamin Raspail. Right. The, right, the flutist, former patient, flutist, flautist, um, right, former patient, and Lecter knows all along who Buffalo Bill is. Right, I right. mean, he knows right away that this is the guy that he met as a former patient that he saw a few times. So he sort of steers her. I mean, Lecter kind of steers Clarice all along. You know, she doesn't actually right. figure out very much in this movie that he doesn't tell her and she gets lucky at the end of the movie and stumbles on to buffalo bill right um, no lector lector is is doing this for amusement and also i guess at some point i don't know when but at some point he realizes he might be able to get out of there but he right he's clearly the, look the guy's been in one room for eight years and he's an extremely intelligent guy who doesn't seem too crazy in the movie Right, um, but he's also yeah. having fun with this. Like he's having yeah, fun he's, sending he's Clarice himself. on errands, you know, to do stuff. By the way, I believe that the card that Benjamin Raspell's head in is a hearse. It appears I to be a hearse. It's either that or a limo, because under the um, it looks like a hearse on the inside, but on the outside, it has curtains on the windows. It does, but it's not shaped like a hearse. It's shaped like some kind of old limo. I don't, it's, it's hard to creepy. tell. Though. It's underneath an American flag. You never see the whole car. Right. Um, and then we sort of quickly transition to, I think, one of the best scenes in the movie, uh, which is when, when Frederica Bimmel's body is found and they have to go to the funeral parlor. And a lot happens. Mm-hmm. Right? One is... Right. Uh, Crawford throws a little shade her way to get rid of the cops, and and what she later calls him out on is kind of a sexist move. Right, highlighting one of the themes uh, in the movie. And then she sort of later has to, sort of in an assertive way, clear the room of all these local West Virginia cops who are pretty much doing nothing except you know, uh, rubbernecking. <sighs> At this funeral. Right. And, she, you know, I love the way Which, she does it. She does it in a way that kind of like a man couldn't get away with, you know. You've all done your work, and I know her family would thank you if they her. could. Yeah. And, 
Go on right, now. Right, and she's sound. She's clearly from there. Right, go right? on now. So then, like she's and they just like a reflexively mom or listen a church to her. Lady or a neighbor lady. She sort of ushers the men all out. Yeah, they and they they follow. You know, she they just reflexively listen to her. I mean, she. I mean, it, it shows also how fa- you know that she's really effective because she knows she can do that. Like that was calculated on her part. And that's that sort of the moment where. I think her character turns like Clarice is not the same after she sees the mutilated body. Like she's much more engaged. She's much more serious. She's less afraid. Like she, I I think she's sort of almost like she's not a trainee. Like she becomes, she's no longer a Jedi Padawan after that. She's like a full fledged (laughs) Jedi, you know? (laughs) Um, And the scene where, they do the, it's not really an autopsy per se. It's like the examination of the body um, is so well done because you, except for one fleeting shot, that's like a medium shot. And then a little bit of a close up, you know, when they take the bug cocoon out of the mouth, you don't really see much. And you're really just watching Clarice talking into her microphone, into her tape recorder. it's, It's all reaction shots, the whole thing. Right. Um, I love, by the way, when they say, uh, you know, she's like star-shaped entrance wound at the sternum, and then somebody in the room, you don't say who, says wrongful death. And she goes, wrongful it's death. The, right, it's the, um, they have like a doctor. I guess he's probably, level, he's either the local pathologist or the local just physician, I don't know. And he basically had to come in and say that, do a preliminary review and right, say or, that it was a wrongful maybe he's, death. I was or, actually thinking he's the county coroner or something. Right, he he prob right he was pro- that's probably what he was. You're right. So right, but he basically makes a de- a spot determination that says that it's basically this needs to be investigated criminally rather than just releasing her, her to the funeral home. Right. Basically, and I love lo- the character of Lamar. Um, the you know it's unclear. Like you know everybody else leaves and Lamar doesn't go. Like I kind of get the impression he's like the mortician's assistant in the funeral home. Um, or he's just the mortician. Yeah, maybe, like but he you know, he's only in this one scene, and he—you can't take your eyes off him. That's, by the way, that's Tracy Walter, who's been in a million movies he's in and a ton TV of stuff. shows. I know. Uh, I remember Veteran him from Best actor. in the West. He was on Best in the West, which you probably forgot about, which was sort of like a sitcom in the '80s. And he's—he plays one of the Arnie's sidekicks and. Conan the Destroyer, which, by the way, we should never do a podcast on Conan the Destroyer. It's awful. Oh, man. That's what I was going to pick next. <laughs> uh, Conan the Barbarian, yay. Conan the Destroyer, <laughs> nay. Um, I would say nay to both. But, the only thing that makes them interesting is that that man became the governor of California. <laughs> but but Lamar, you know, he's not upset. You know, like, he's seen everything in a room full of horrified people Lamar is, mm. he's the calmest of them all. And then sort of throughout the whole scene, there's the the flash of the photograph and the sort of whine of the flash bulb going off in the background yep. to sort of yeah. give it this sort of like harsh clinical edge. I, I, it's one of the greatest scenes in the movie. Um, yeah, I think it's a little bit bogus that the dead body exhales when they take the, the, the bug cocoon out of its mouth. If you listen it carefully, did. the dead body goes... When they oh well, that's just the that's just the foley person doing. I know, that. of course, and just of course. And then, I mean, it's also not obviously a dead person, but like I thought that was a little bit of a lame effect, you know? Like, yeah, that, we should look up who the foley guy was and just like <laughs> give him some. Right, shit and she, for that. Um, 
You know, and then after exactly. that, her quid pro quo with Lecter escalates. She's more willing to engage with him because she now she really wants to get Buffalo Bill. And like for example, when they when they pull the by the way, just to jump back to the funeral parlor, when they unzip the the cadaver, you know, she yeah. sort of says Bill. Like it's like she's sort of encountering him through this this corpse. Yep. And then the quid pro quo really escalates. Do you want to talk about the quid pro quo? Yeah. So, you know, basically, um, Lecter, at that point, they, they go and they make, they basically ask for Lecter's help, specifically, in, in investigating Buffalo Bill. Because their initial meeting, although that was Crawford's intention, it's that no one, she didn't know, Clarice didn't know, and Lecter figured it out, but he, it wasn't open from the beginning. Whereas when she goes back to him again, they really want his help. And, uh, and she and, kind of half figures out or suspects that he knows all along who it is. She, yeah, she has a feeling that he's holding back and that he's, he's, he's sort of toying with her and that he knows a lot. And, um, so she, uh, so there, there's, you sort of have the assumption that she takes her impressions back to Crawford and says that she probably told Crawford, he knows a lot, something, he knows what's going on and he's not saying because he wants to, he, he wants entertainment. Right. But, and the clock is ticking, you know, like what's fun for him is torture for everyone else involved because they don't know how much time, right. Catherine Martin right. has down in the hole. Right, because right, because basically she gets, you know, he Buffalo Bill takes her. She's this happens to be the Tennessee senator, junior senator's daughter, right? Um, a twenty-five year old daughter, and they know that she basically only has a few days because he holds them for a few days and kills them. And you know, the quid pro quo is great because it forces her to reveal about herself, and he reveals nothing about himself. Like it's sort of an asymmetric quid pro quo because he's giving her information about a third party and she's giving out personal information to him. Right. And, and so he finds out about her past that her father died when she was 10, that she went to Montana with a cousin to live. And she gradually sort of reveals the details, the, the most traumatic uh, memories that she has from childhood. Right. Culminating, to, to in, culminating in the titular, uh, uh, screaming, screaming of, the of the lambs that that she wants very much to silence right right with Catherine and, martin and being the lamb that maybe she can save this time right and lector figures out you know the lector says to her a couple of times you know let me know if the lamb stops screaming and i like the way too that they didn't go for cliche and i'm really talking about thomas harris here in the book you know, like the the rancher didn't molest her. Like he wasn't the right. villain. You know, like you go. I actually remember thinking at the time that oh, that's what they were going to do. You know, he he was a bad guy or whatever. He abused her. Then it actually turns out that no, no, he he wasn't. You know, she just didn't work out there, and they sent her away. Right. He was just pissed because he's you know like he was affecting their livelihood. She was affect, affecting their livelihood by you know interrupting the, the slaughter of the spring and, lambs. And disruptive. And you can imagine it sort of implied maybe they didn't want her in the first place, and it was a it was a, a convenient excuse to move her along. Sure. Um. So she makes the offer to him to go to Anthrax Island, uh, one week a year, uh. If he'll agree to give more information, which turns out to be a ruse, um, right? And and then enter 
Frederick Chilton, who uh, conveniently forgets that he left his pen in Lecter's cell. Um, yeah. There's a great bit in the book where the senator and her staff, like, they're they're not so sure about Chilton. They're like, oh, this guy's kind of sketchy. And the, the scene in the, in the movie is in the book where, you know, Lecter is presented to them, you know, on the hand truck. With the with the hockey right. mask on mm-hmm. and you know twenty eight point restraints and he, by the way that he looks you know that's the classic kind of slasher movie serial killer look which is it, it's it's sort of a it's it's a nod I think it's amusing because you know he's got the hockey mask on essentially this scary mask where he looks like a really bad slasher movie but this movie's infinitely he's infinitely more frightening well, and also, you know than the slasher movie and the guy way that in the, the hockey mask sort of haul him around in a hand truck like you could imagine like it sort of implies <laughs> right. like it took him a while to figure out how to you know how do we move Lecter when we have to move him you know um, right, they've had him long enough that they've figured out how to minimize the chance of him chewing someone's face there's off. There's a great bit in the book, though, where in the movie, you know, Chilton says, uh, Senator Martin, Dr. Hannibal Lecter. And it, it doesn't come across in the movie, but in the book, like when she sees how Chilton exploits the moment for theatricality, she's sort of like, oh, my God, we've put all our faith in this guy. Like, they're so yeah. put off by him. Yeah, so Chilton makes some kind of real deal with Lecter, essentially, uh, calling the bluff. But Lecter, at this point, has started, he's planned an escape. And he um, gives her a fake name. He gives her a real description and a fake name, right? He says, Louis right. Friend. In the book, by the way, he gives the name William Rubin, Billy Rubin. Um, <laughs> right, that's right. I forgot. Um Right, with Lewis Friend being an anagram of Iron Pyrite or Fool's Gold, which which Fool's Clarice gold. figures out um, later. Later, and then again, and then he's transferred to the cage in the federal building uh, from which he makes in Memphis, his, right? From right. which he makes his escape. Um, you know, we haven't talked a lot about Ted Levine. Should we spend a, as we sort of walk through? Should we talk about Ted Levine, who plays uh, James Gum, aka Buffalo Bill? <laughs> <laughs> yeah ted levine who uh you know had a bunch of other roles after this but every time anybody ever sees the guy he's buffalo bill you know it's it's and, you know, <laughs> and he's got a very very particular voice too he's got sort of a nasal uh voice and every time i see him in anything else i think of him saying it puts the lotion in the basket <laughs> but i always the line i always think of when he says oh is she a great big fat person <laughs> yeah. It rubs the lotion on its skin. <laughs> or it gets the hose again. Uh, uh, you know, it's funny. Yes. He also played. Um, how's this? How's this for uh, the world looping back on itself? He played Alan Shepard in the HBO miniseries From the Earth to the Moon and Scott. Yeah. Glenn, who plays Jack Crawford, played Alan Shepard in The Right Stuff. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so the, yeah, they, yeah. they both walked on the moon, uh, Jack Crawford and Somehow they Bill. both. But, you know. You look at these two guys, you don't think astronaut in this movie. You know, uh, Ted Levine was only 33 when he's cast in this. Like, he looks a lot older to me. I mean, some of it is his hairline is so far back. Like, he's got so much temple recession. Uh, and he looks a little yeah. rough, but he's only 33 when they made this. And James Gum yeah. is only supposed to be 35. Uh, you know, 
he he was there all the all the players in this movie were were really really solid really good character actors at least you know i mean he he was great everybody was good in their in their roles and he's you know he's genuinely frightening and he's he's also sort of you know he has a point of view that you can understand if not relate to you know in in red dragon for example it's done in a very different way like the villain in red dragon the francis dollarhide character like he's fighting with it like he's he's killed people but he's torn about it and he's trying to yeah. fight his sort of inner demon uh, literally and figuratively uh, whereas in this you know, James Gum is all in. You know, like he has no doubts about what he's doing, and you know that. You know, unlike Francis Dollarhide, who may or may not kill his last victim, you know, you know, given the chance, James Gum is gonna he's gonna kill Catherine Martin. Um, yeah. And oh, it's yeah, it's coming. And then I guess also we should give a, a little bit to Brooke Smith, right, who plays Catherine Martin, who I you know she's been in a ton of stuff, but I really haven't seen her in a lot of stuff. Like, when I look through the list of other movies and TV shows that she's been in, it's not really a lot of stuff I've watched, but she's had a pretty busy career. Like, I don't think a year has passed that she hasn't been in a TV show or a movie since this time. Mm-hmm. Um, although, again, I not really, not much that I'd seen. A lot of sort of police procedural shows she's been in. Um, but she's good in this. And, and I, you know, she... I, what I like about her in this is that she doesn't just you know, um, fall into the trap of just being the girl yelling and screaming in the hole. And her her best bit is, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but her best bit is when, at the end of the movie, when Clarice is there, and she's like, I'm going to get you out. And she's like, bullshit, you know, like, this guy's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Screw you, bitch, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, where are you going, bitch? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, it's funny, like, she's lost all faith in everything. And even though Clarice does that, the other officers are on the way, you know, like, you know, Catherine Martin's like, yeah. oh, no, they're not. <laughs> exactly she could hear the lie and just yeah and, and she she tries to you know she the, the dog precious she grabs the dog precious and during her her bargaining which is about to get right, a shot she comes up with a um, plan to get out of this hole on her own right using a chicken yep, bone and a trying. bucket and um right and then during that that's when clarice rings the bell the doorbell so yeah that that every all the characters are are motivated appropriately you know there there's no uh like you said that chilton maybe is the only one who's a little bit of a cardboard you know know, and it's it's strange that they did that i mean maybe they did that just to sort of give the ending a little you know zing you know you don't feel so bad at the end when you know chilton's gonna get eaten you know in honduras or wherever he ends up um Right. Yeah, but wait, well, a lot wait. of the movie. I don't want to jump and, too far. We got to get back to Memphis. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I just in, as a general point, sort of the the one thing maybe about the movie that I'm not so sure about is the movie really plays up Lecter as a hero throughout the throughout the movie. And, I don't know if I'd use the word hero. I would say he's one of the he's like the male protagonist. But that's not this, he's you know, I mean, that. he's got I mean, more in common with Alex the Large of Clockwork Orange than he does with, you know, a typical hero. I guess, but, you know, they never, you really, you kind of, you root for him, right? 
you like you're kind of happy you he gets do. away. You know, like you kind of like you you identify like yeah, it would be kind of bad to be in that cell all the time with that with that you know fundamentalist preacher screaming at you on the TV. <laughs> you could yeah, see. You could, and you, I he, guess you could. You can see his point even if you don't identify with him, if that makes any sense. Well, and the other thing is, you know, that they they sort of explain his crime, the, the little bit of information you get about his crimes. Or when you see him be violent a lot of the time, it's it's either understandable or it has some sort of rationale in something. Except for the you know, two like, policemen. Yes, and again, and the for example, is the only time. Right. But other people are polite. Like he kills Migs because Migs is a jerk, and he's kind of embarrassed, and he has a sense of maybe an overblown sense of propriety. By the way, like Paul Atreides, um, he can kill with a word. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't need a weirding module. No, um, he had the weird module. Um, <laughs> but you know, like for example, you know. He disembowels and hangs up the other officer, not Pembry. I guess it's Doyle yeah. or Boyle. Um, the lieutenant, yeah. Uh, and, and that's sort of a, you know, a, a hint at what he's really capable of too. Like, and part of that is to make every, you know, while he's laying there on the floor, right with Jim Pembry's face on. Right, him. he has to make it. He has to um, horrify them so they won't notice his ruse. You know, so I, yeah. And, and truly nobody figured that out. Like when that when people saw that the first time, nobody figured out that he's in the ambulance until it's too late. Like when they when they shoot the guy on the elevator roof and he doesn't move. I remember thinking like, hmm, he can't be dead, but I didn't figure no. it out. You know, then when you see him take the face off in the yep, ambulance. They really got everybody. They they played it perfectly. And it's one of the it's there's a few great bait and switches in this movie and that's really one yeah. of them and you know that whole scene is preceded by you know his penultimate encounter with clarice uh, it's their last face-to-face encounter you know and there's that you know he kind of gives her the last piece of the puzzle where he talks about coveting that sort of leads her back to belvedere ohio right. to try to figure out who knew like you know who did frederica bimmel know? right and their time is cut and then short there's that great you know, bit like- Right, and there's that great bit where he touches right. her, like they 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 touch fingers, which is by the way sort of echoed later on when she shakes Crawford's hand. Like she does have some sort of physical contact with these father figures that's meaningful and emotional, if not sexual. Right. And you know, but that's another another part. You know that they they make Lecter uh, sort of like her. You know, and he even goes so far to re and, and she she gets that point too because she says that he's not going to come after me. She implicitly understands it, right? And he says it to her right. at the end in their final encounter over right. the phone. He says to her flat out, "I have no plans to right. Call the world him. is better. The world is more interesting right. with you in it." And and he he feels the need to you know he reassures her, and so it's another thing that makes him sort of sympathetic, right? And. I don't know that that to me, you know, I mean, the guy, you know, wh- how is he nuts? That's the thing I wonder. You know, yes, the the fact that he kills the cops is the only thing that's sort of horrifying that he really does. That's horrifying during the during the movie. Um, I wonder. I mean, he he's almost heroic in the movie. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not quite sure I'd go with that one. I but- mean. I, I see where you're going. You know I, mean? I just don't know if I I would use 
he's not to me. He's not he's, quite. He's, not, he's not quite there, right? Because he's. I mean, he's fascinating. You can't take your eyes off of him, but he's not heroic, and you understand him, and you're interested in him, and you. I don't know if I would say you sympathize, but you you could you could put yourself in the position of somebody who's been locked in a cage for a year. Yeah, and, and but it's also but because he's so interesting and because he helps her and because he's sort of because the two main characters achieve some sort of connection and understanding, and then he goes out of his way to tell her that she's safe. It makes him even more sympathetic in a way. And so in the end, when he's going after Chilton, who is sort of a straw dog putz in a way, you know. Um, that helps, you know, you figure that the guy's getting what he deserves. But it, it, it's sort of, it's a, you know, it's a perverse ending. And, you know, he, he obviously killed a whole bunch of people to get out. And they even say that he killed people at the airport and whatever. So he's not perfect, but he's not. Right. And he murders the entire ambulance right. crew. And, and some tourists at the airport. You know, I mean, it's just like he, he, he leaves a trail of death and destruction behind him. But. At the same time, he's sort of sympathetic in like in the end, right? He's not just just a curiosity or just a horror or just sort of the sense that he's a device or he's um he's sort of an intellectual construct almost the way Alex is in Clockwork Orange. Um I I get the sense, you know, you sort of have a, a sort of a fascination with him. And maybe he's he's not quite heroic, but he's sympathetic more more than just yeah, interesting in he's more than just interesting I mean, and then for example in the sequel in hannibal you know you don't want him to get caught like the movie is more fun with him running around right. but those movies were not in the you same know, but class. again you're just at that point you as a viewer you know you're there to see anthony hopkins be witty and write letters to clarice yeah um i really enjoy and it's probably the part of the movie that a lot of people forget about the most but i really enjoy her trip to Belvedere, Ohio, when she visits Frederica Bimmel's mm-hmm. house. Um, and it's, you know, like, it's so bleak. Yep. You know, like, the father is sort of like, like, the town. Like, she literally lives across the street from the train tracks. Yeah, and she's, um, you know, she's, it's been the a house while. is crappy you know, and old. It's not like a couple weeks later. It's months or a year or two later. You know, like, some t- Yeah, and the father has long since given up hope that they would ever make an arrest. Right. You know, he's just... He's he's spent like losing his daughter has just taken all the life out of him. And it's never coming back, and and there's a little bit that you know he says the father says oh you know they've been through here a million times, and that because she's a woman it's implied she figures out to look in the back of the music box like a man wouldn't know to do right. that, you know and he finds he finds the sort of the nudie cuties implying that maybe there was a man in her life and and then she figures out from the darts in the back of the dress. You know that he's, he's basically a, sort of aping Ed Gein's right. uh, Ed Gein's uh, mo and making a, a suit out of a woman. Right. Um, and then it comes to the other great head fake of the movie, <laughs> where Jack Crawford and all are in Calumet City, Chicago, Illinois, right. right? And then she goes to visit the woman who was her best friend. Uh, she, you know, big dummy, she calls her that, that pretty brunette girl, um, and suggests that, you know, well, Mrs. Lippman was a member of the sewing circle too. And then she goes to Mrs. Lippman's house and there he is only to discover. (laughs) Right. And then, and again, once again, everyone in the theater thinks that Jack Crawford is, is about to bust in (laughs) on 
because they Gunn. edit it very then, tightly between you know the the doorbell press of, of the FBI and the SWAT team out in in Illinois and the and Clarice pushing ringing the bell. You know they edit it in such a way that they really completely fool you until he opens the door and it's just Clarice standing there by herself. And and I just like everybody else was completely fooled. And I remember when they bust in and they cut to Crawford and he goes Starling. Yeah. You know, and he realizes that, uh-oh, like, she might be closer than right, we are. she got it. You know, and he's half worried for her, and he's half he's half kind of pissed off that he got suckered. Yeah. By the way, did you notice that um, when she's talking to, to, to Buffalo Bill, by the way, what a scene, yeah. but he gives her the name um, Jack yeah. Gordon. Like, his other alias is John Grant. His name is James Gum. Like, it's always these JG right. names. Like, that's sort of how he thinks. And it's good because you can see her, like, the realization slowly dawning on her that that this is him. Like, I have stumbled across Buffalo Bill himself. Right, and when she sees right the, when she sees the moth. Um, well, the moth, I think, I think the moth like is the final thing like he's acting weird and he's acting strange and he's got a weird affect but i think like the moth is like what finally pushes her over the edge yeah. to sort of the concrete realization but she's very suspicious can i use your phone you know she's very suspicious of him well she's oh i think i got her card here somewhere. yeah he starts right she starts to get suspicious of him like a minute or two before he's backing away from yeah. her he like he has he's sort of interested in the case and then he's like oh I read something about that in the paper yeah he keeps asking her if and they then, have any leads like he's really and he's sort of persistently asking her like you guys have any fingerprints right, he's trying to figure out what they right, know right is it how or is he in danger right now and um and the gun is in the kitchen on right the it's stove. like three feet away it's this giant by the way what that giant, gigantic like, three fifty seven. And um, so he's uh, right. So so and then and then she see, right. And then she goes after him. Right. She kind of shakily right. pulls and out her And you can imagine, you know, a lot of cops would have just like run out of the building and called the police. But you know, she knows that Catherine Martin's in the building, and you know, maybe he runs down there and kills her. Right. And I think I think it's the realization that he could he could run down there and impulsively kill her that makes her go after him. Right. And you know, you get the sense that. A lot of times in a movie when that happens and the protagonist runs into something dangerous, you think, like, what a moron, like, this is totally unrealistic. But in this case, you don't. Because it... Yeah, and you understand her her rationale. Right, you understand it, and she, you know, they've built up this sort of sense of time pressure, and and now it's... And, and in fact, you've just also seen him actually go get his giant three fifty seven, and he's going to shoot He's going to shoot um, his prison, you know, Catherine Martin, because because she's got the dog down there. So he's just and you know, I think you know, once he gets on the night vision goggles and they're running around. By the way, you actually, I th- I believe that that's Mrs. Littman you see in the tub. By the way, right before the lights. Oh go out. yeah, that's that's a good thought. Um, yeah. Um, it's never explicitly stated, but it, to me, it just makes sense that right. Like, you know, he killed her and threw her down there and left her. Um, I, it's kind of implied to me, just from the way that it's filmed, that he he hesitates in killing her because, you know, she's what he wants to be. Like, she's a pretty woman. You know, like, I think 
that's like his sort of fatal moment there. Like he he pauses. Like he could he has ample chance to kill her, but you know she's pretty. He's sort of reaching out to maybe just feel her hair. And for she's a helpless too. And he's sort of just interested in the. He knows exactly how dark it is. You know. And he's used to, he's very comfortable in that basement. Yeah. You know, he knows his way around that basement right. with or without night vision goggles. But I, but there's a little bit of like, there's a little voyeurism. bit of maybe envy yeah. for her. Yeah. Voyeurism is a good word for it, you know? And then when he cocks the gun, like, you know, she, she has no hesitation. Like she hears the gun and she right. fires, you know? Now, by the way, I like the way she has a speed loader yeah. for her uh, for her revolver. Right, and she and she's got hollow points like they conspicuously show when she turns her gun in in uh, in Memphis that she's got hollow points in the gun. Right, and and she um she shoots him and he gets a he gets a round off and she has powder burns somewhere so that clearly like they were so cl- they on her face, yeah they were I so think. close like they were so right close. and he just missed her. right he just the bullet just pissed just right. passed her and then and then uh, the movie sort of wraps up. Catherine Martin takes the dog. Um, I guess they're pals now. Yeah. Uh, although maybe I couldn't. Maybe was the dog really hurt in the fall or not? Nah. I guess not. And then um, at her graduation no ceremony, no animals were harmed in the making of this picture. <laughs> uh, in the graduation ceremony, Crawford kind of ducks out. You know, he, he he you know they have their handshake and he you know he he moves on. In the books. I don't remember if it's this book or Red Dragon. In the books, his wife Bella is dying, and like it's sort of implied that he's he's at work all the time because it's it's too awful to be home with his dying wife. Um, and and then she gets the call, and he's wearing the wig, and you find out that he has uh, you know, made his way down to Honduras or wherever it is, and and Chilton's on the menu. Right, he's having dinner with him. He's having an old friend for dinner. Ha ha. In the book, they explain how he changes his appearance. He, like, he goes to a, a hotel near a hospital, and he sort of does a little bit of surgery on his face in the hotel, and he walks around in a surgical mask, figuring, well, I'm next door to a hospital, so people wearing surgical masks are normal hmm. here. And that's, that's how he's sort of able to alter his appearance. Um, so Jonathan Demme is not a horror director. I mean, like, is, this is his only horror film. I mean, this is a guy who made a lot of light stuff. I mean, he also made Philadelphia, but he made, um, you know, Melvin and Howard, sort of touching touching back yes, on our uh, right. Howard Hughes Swing theme. Um, married to yeah. the mob, something wild. Right. I mean, interesting that he that he makes a horror movie and then sort of breaks the mold and makes the horror movie of horror movies. You know, sort of like Kubrick made The Shining, like Kubrick made one horror movie and, and it was like a genre-defining film in the same way that this is a genre-defining film from a guy who doesn't make horror mm-hmm. movies. You know, I, when you look through, like, I don't know if you're a big Jonathan Demme fan, like, I'm I'm kind of not. Like, you know, when I look through the the other movies he's made, like, Really, this is the only one that I really, really have strong feelings about, and I've seen about eighty percent of what he's made. But this is the this is really the one that, like, when you know, like the the time will remember him yeah. for. Yeah, he did a remake. He did Manchurian Candidate remake. I guess that was with uh, Denzel Washington, wasn't it, or something? I think. Yeah, although it really just reminded you how great. Yeah, no, no, you, there's uh, no point in remaking that one. <laughs> the nineteen sixty two. Well, version. I mean. Who directed the 62? Oh, the 62 version is Frankenheimer, I, think I believe. So. But 
of uh, of Ronin, right? Fame. But there's no there's no uh, there's no reason to remake that. But that's another story. Did John Frankenheimer? Did he direct um, uh, the Gene Hackman movie about uh, yeah, French Connection? Did. did he I think, direct the French I think Connection? French Connection was him too. Um, but anyway, but we digress. Um, but yeah, so I mean, like, I don't know, like, are, are you a Jonathan? You know, like, I'm kind of like I'm a Kubrick fan. I'm a John Carpenter fan. Yeah, I, you know, I, like, like he. Yeah, Scorsese, or like he's just not one of the directors that's sort of in my my short list, you know. Right, but um, this movie is uh, is up there with those guys, you know, and it's it's it is it's, no, I, mean, I know, like, I, I don't and, know how he you did know, it. Like it's it's the movie where he surpassed himself, you yeah. know, like. And Ted Talley wrote this, you know, like not a lot of other Ted Talley movies come to mind for me, and like for example, Ted Talley wrote. Um, I believe he wrote the screenplay to Red Dragon, and you know, like it's Red Dragon is. I'm not talking about Manhunter. I'm talking about Red mm-hmm. Dragon. It's not one tenth as good. Right. I don't even remember it. I know I've seen it, but yeah. I mean, he wrote. He wrote the Juror. He wrote all the Pretty Horses, Red Dragon. But you know, like, like never, never kind of captured, kind of like so much so quickly and again it reminded me a little bit of you know like when uh, when the cone brothers won best screenplay for um true grit you know in an interview they said well we just typed out you know what was in the book like we you know we had the book open and we converted it to a screenplay i mean a lot of this is just taken straight from the thomas harris novel yeah you know by the way harris has not given an interview since the 80s hmm. Like he just won't do it. I read a couple of articles, and they, a few people mentioned that like, like he'll take your call. Like if you call him, he'll hmm. he'll answer. Uh, but the, like like but the minute it becomes an interview, he's like, oh, gotta go. No thanks. No comment. This is all just between us, which is sort of interesting, you know. Like he prefers to speak through his novels. You know, he's only written five books. Yeah, and every one of them was a movie. Yep, every one. Did you see Black Sunday when we were kids? Have you ever seen it? I don't think I've it? ever seen it. It's pretty good. I read the book. I read all his books and I've seen all the movies. Black Sunday is pretty good. We should consider Black Sunday at some point. I don't know if I read uh, Hannibal Rising. Uh, I know I read Hannibal. I can't remember if I read Hannibal. You know, honestly, I mean, there's. Yeah, they're they're not as good. Silence of the Lambs, Red Dragon, and, and Hannibal's not a bad book, but Hannibal Rising is not great in any of its incarnations. And Black Sunday is not bad. Black Sunday stars uh, Bruce Dern and um, uh, the guy who plays Quint in Jaws. Mm. Uh, uh, Robert Shaw. Mm. Robert Shaw. Uh, it's a pretty good movie, actually. Uh, I'm t- I've said it this like my third time saying it, but now that I think, but we really should do Black Sunday. Sure. Like, it's really good. Um, I actually saw Black Sunday in the theater. Jesus, what were my parents thinking? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's cool. Although, my dad also took us to see Alien uh, when we were we we lads. Um, yeah, and look at you now. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. Um, I don't know. It's just it's interesting. Like it's interesting how. To me, too, how the world hasn't tired of forensics. And, like, for example, like, I can't watch CSI. Like, it's just awful to me. You know, and, like, 
you know, like they've had to work so hard to top this. Like, like this movie is about a girl in a pit who's going to be taken apart to have her skin used to to make a, a suit so that a, that a, a a transsexual or a confused transsexual can can cavort around in. Yeah, but and, he would look so you know, fabulous. Like, if they so. made that now, like they could show that on TV and the stuff that they try to do on CSI and those shows, like it's so ridiculous and over the top, you know, and like. Like just the simplicity of this movie and the story makes it even more frightening. Well, that's that's you know it's like like we said at the beginning. I, I'm not quite sure how they captured lightning in a bottle, and they made a movie that is extremely popular, extremely palatable, and really excellent. It's just you know it's remarkable. I, I still I can't you know we discuss about. We discussed about this uh, this movie. We discussed a lot of details about it. I'm still not sure how it, it comes together in a way that exceeds its bits. You know, it really it really is a synergistic kind of you know picture. I, I don't know. It, it somehow exceeds everything. It exceeds itself. And you know, it makes you wonder too. Like when they were making it. You know, like, it's easy to look back now and say, oh, what a great thing it was. But, you know, when they were making it, was, you know, was Jodie Foster on the phone to her agent every day? Like, I don't know about yeah, this, this one. Yeah, this thing's going to be a stinker. You know, was, yeah, was, you know, was, uh, was Scott Glenn, like, just happy for a paycheck? Probably. You know, like, like you don't know. Like, sometimes you can tell when people know, like, wow, this is really going to be a breakthrough movie. But, you know, it reminds me of Mark Hamill. One of my favorite Mark Hamill quotes is, like, Mark Hamill kind of knew Star Wars was going to be big and in a way that for example like if you listen to interviews with Harrison Ford or Carrie Fisher like Carrie Fisher explicitly says that she had no idea the movie was going to be so big and and Mark Hamill kind of got the sense of it and and his great line about it was he said to his uh, girlfriend who would later become his wife he said this thing's going to be bigger than Planet of the Apes <laughs> you know like that was his that was the high watermark you right. know and he had no idea that it would you know it would be not ten times bigger than Planet of the Apes, but a thousand times bigger. But he at least had a sense like this is big. This movie. Yeah, I, I don't. I doubt it. I, I bet that they made this movie. They paid attention to detail. I think a lot of it rests on Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. A lot of the uh, the really exceptional qualities of the movie um, rest on their take on the characters and their interaction. And you know a bunch of and a bunch yeah. of close ups, so you can watch them work um, in close up. Well, and and you know the you know we haven't talked about the cinematography, and I was watching it this time, sort of like thinking about the cinematography and the blocking, and and there's some special shots in it, but a lot of it is filmed in a very sort of mundane yeah. way, and I think that's sort of make the the situations they're in feel ordinary. You know, like like sure the scenes in the prison are filmed in a very stylized way. Um, and the scene at the in Memphis where Lecter gets away, also. But you know, like for example, the scenes in Frederica's house are filmed in a very plain. But even way. the stylized shots in the when, in their encounters in the in when he's in captivity are not really that nutsy. I mean, all he's doing is he's using um, telephoto lenses with pretty tight close-ups and playing with depth of field a little bit that's all he's doing and, right and, and a lot of the shots of male i don't know if you noticed but a lot of the times when men talk to clarice 
they're looking into the camera very directly, yeah. whereas when Clarice talks, she's often looking slightly off to the side. Except when she, like, she's a but little not bit, when she talks to Lecter. She's a little like, when she talks to Lecter, not the, it's straight. But the first time when she talks to Lecter, she doesn't do that. Later, when she's more insistent, she does. But the first time, she's often looking mm. away. You know, or she's looking at the floor, you know. Interesting. Like, like it's hard, but, but they still show him in all tight the men are looking right at her, like Chilton, Lecter, Crawford. They're all staring right at her. Yeah. But you know, I mean, aside from you know, there's a bunch of close-ups, and there's some really pretty exceptional work by those two actors. And I, I don't, I'm not, but uh, but it really achieves something remarkable. Oh yeah. So I mean. Here we are 25 years later, and I've seen this movie, mm, I mean, a lot, 15 yeah. times, 20 times, yeah. and it, it really, really holds your attention. Yeah, it holds up super well. You know, you know, I, um, James Gum, Buffalo Bill, he's based on a bunch of serial killers, but he's mostly based on Ed Gein, the idea of making a, you know, a suit out of another person's skin. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's been a lot of movies about... Ed Gein, like in one way or another, like right back to Psycho, like Psycho borrows a lot from Ed Gein's story. This does, there's like four or five horror films kind of based on the Ed Gein story, mm. which is interesting. Although Ed Gein, I think he only actually killed one person. Most of the bodies he got were he, he robbed graves. Mm. Like, I think when they went to his house, there were like bits of dozens of people but i think i think he only killed one person i'm not 100 percent sure of that but i think i think that was it hmm. uh, uh, i wonder if the person was his mother you know i don't know i gotta double check hmm. i gotta read a little bit about ed gein apparently a lot of people like to visit ed gein's grave apparently that's like a popular pastime among people interested in serial sounds killers. like a fun afternoon <laughs> hey, you know you're into what you're into as i always say um, so I'll do I'll do my best line, best scene, uh, best shot. Um, I said earlier I think the best shot is the first shot of Lecter because it's so unexpected and it, it changes and sets the tone for the rest of the mm-hmm. film. Uh, my favorite line is "Hello, Clarice," um, sort of like as the 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 verbal equivalent of that first shot. Um, and I think the best scene or sequence in the movie is Lecter's escape. Um, it's it's in some ways it's even more intense than than Buffalo Bill's you know defeat at the end for me, but just like that whole bit where it's sort of very quickly you're in a proceed you're in a police procedural with the SWAT mm-hmm. team, and you know you, you know you just don't see it coming, and then the way it very quickly cuts to him in the ambulance to Clarice on the phone, you know finding out that he's out. Mm-hmm. You know, and that bit where he pulls the face off, yeah, you know, it's such a stunning, it's such a shocking moment, you know, and it's, it, there's not a lot of truly shocking moments in film, you know, and this really, like, it's, a, you know, you sort of see, like, the depths of what Lecter is capable of and how smart he is all in one Yeah, bit. that's a home run. <laughs> no question. I, I, yeah, I went, when I was, when I was watching the, the movie again for this podcast, I watched that scene three times. Yeah. Just to sort of see how they put it together. I think I agree with you on the, the, the best shot. First shot where Lecter's standing there. I think best line 
I, if, for me, it's got to be the fava beans. I just you have to you have <laughs> really? to. It's been so well, like you're not tired. No, of sure, it? I'm tired of it. But if you you got to pull that out, like you gotta you gotta get out of the fact that it's become a pop culture reference at this point, and just remember it back when it's when he first said that. Yeah. I mean, when he. I think my second favorite line is, was she a great big black person? <laughs> it rubs the lotion on its skin. Yeah, that, those are some pretty good. Put the lotion in the fucking basket. That was a great line. <laughs> that was really good, too. But no, I mean, if you take out the fact that everybody freaked out about the fava bean line and take out the last 25 years of people hacking it up and using it and... It's it's now become a, a beyond cliched line, right? But the reason that it really took people's hold is because it was such it was so good, and it really it really like drove right into them. You know, they remember that line. I mean, people remember that line verbatim. <laughs> and and he and he openly acknowledges the he does, and he he's incredibly shocking, and he says it in a such a plain way, but he's trying to shock her, and then he gives the little. Just to just to torture her a little bit, just to sort of appear as the monster and torture, right? Us. Just to appear as the monster. But I think that's a great line, and I think the best scene for me, any scene where Clarice and Lecter are interacting. So, right, that's the core that's of the, the core, film. Right? And, and, yeah. for, and in the same way that, like in the books, you know, you look you look forward to Clarice talking to him, whereas in the later books, you look forward to. Lecter's letters to Clarice because they can't really meet like that anymore. So he writes her occasional letters. Yeah. I mean, any any um, of those, those scenes are have you phenomenally s- great. Have you seen Manhunter? Yes, but not for years. It's pretty I kinda, good. I gotta no, say, I, mean, it's, it's I really gotta, dig Michael Mann. By the way, I have to say, you like Michael Mann more than I do. We've kind of talked about Michael Mann a little bit before. Like you like Heat much more than I do, and I like Heat, but you like it well, more. Well, the bank robbery but, scene um, for me, like I think we should we should probably do Heat because it's a mixed bag, right? But the real reason yeah. I like it is because of mostly because of the bank robbery scene. <laughs> that one like ten minute scene it has the best. It's just such an incredibly violent and loud All those weapons. Yeah, it's awesome. But but you know Manhunter um, is very faithful uh, to the book. There's some they, they change some stuff at the ending a little bit. But Manhunter is a really good movie, and it's interesting is to realize that somebody else played Hannibal Lecter first. A guy named Brian Cox right. plays Lecter in Manhunter, and it's a very different take. And Lecter is a much smaller character in right. that. You know he's he's not incidental to the story, but he's just he's really more to sort of like give the audience a little bit of will graham's history to let you know why will graham is kind of messed up right and brian cox also has been in a lot of stuff as well what else has he been in uh a lot of like independent films like he he's a character he's another character actor you've seen him in other stuff i guarantee it he's been in a whole bunch of independent films i can't remember all of them at this point but i've seen he's been in many um yeah you know, I'm just, I just pulled him up. I haven't... Let me see. Here's his filmography. I'm just pulling him up while we're talking. Yeah, he had... Jesus, he's been in like a million movies. Yeah, he's done it. He's, a, he's an extremely active um, character actor. He's done tons of stuff. But, you know, you wonder if, by the way, somewhere out there he's like, Oh, come on! <laughs> you know, I'm Hannibal Lecter! <laughs> Not that guy. Well, I'm sure that they know Come each on. other because, you know, they're probably about similar age, right? Uh, 
Yeah. So, and you know, I mean, look, Anthony Hopkins for many years toiled as a, a working, you know, British actor, um, doing small bits in U S roles and lots of theater and, uh, toiled away. Right. And then, then he had this, you know, in the way, a lot know, Patrick Stewart, right. Go ahead. Right. Right. Yeah. He, he, he went from, uh, doing Dune and I Claudius to, to captain in the enterprise. Interesting too, how, you know, I think maybe yeah. you there. Uh, you know, William Peterson, who played Will Graham in Manhunter, basically went on to play the same character in CSI. Hmm. Right. I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, CSI is a complete ripoff, yeah. and they got the guy who, you know, he was the, before Clarice Starling. You know, he was Clarice Starling. But, I mean, I've seen a few episodes of CSI, not many. Like I said, I don't, it's not really my thing. But, I mean, he, like, I was struck by, oh, he's just playing Will Graham. By the again. way, they made about 18 different CSI versions. And one of them has that dude, who's the, the guy who's the redhead who was in, like, NYPD Blue or whatever back when. And Carrot Top? Yeah, no, <laughs> like Carrot Top, but less mallets and fruit. <laughs> no, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, what's his face? The guy who David, he does Miami. He does yeah, the CSI David Miami. something. Uh, no, David not David uh, Crosby, but David something like. And not David Duchovny. It sounds like David Crosby, <laughs> but I don't think he was in Crosby, Stills and Nash. Anyway, you know yeah. who I'm talking about. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But you know, but I mean, is, like, yeah, I told like oh, we were joking brutal. at the beginning. There's just a million of them now. You know, I, I mean, I was just watching CSI Schenectady the other day. Jesus, it was incredibly. It well can't done. be worse than CSI Miami. <laughs> and now I got to see what that David, David Caruso. Caruso, right? There you go. Uh, the, the brain thought of it before I could go to Wikipedia. Boy, that's painful. But again, you know, I mean, but here we are living in this post-Silence of the Lambs world where just everyone has just gone back to the well again and again and again and again and again. I'm not sure if it's, you know, if I could change history, just have to never, ever have to have watched CSI, especially CSI Miami. I think it might be better for them not to have ever made uh, Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> like, maybe the lack of the you've had will make up for the lack of the good. Yeah. Well, but, you know, I mean, even John Douglas, you know, he wrote five books, one of which was really great, and the others got less great as they went. I mean, you know, the concept gets watered down, and the public gets familiar with this stuff. Sure. And, you know. Well, then they're doing it for the I money mean, at the that point. I mean, the thing, too, is, you know, like, you know, on CSI, like, they always have the killer as, like, a super genius, <laughs> right? Whereas most serial killers are pretty disorganized people killing, you know, hobos and transients and prostitutes. You know what I mean? Like, you know, they're not they're not super geniuses, you know, laying complex traps and hints for the cops, you know? Like, yeah. no, that's just not happening, right? They're, they're crazy people killing, you know, vulnerable members of society who they figure no one's going to miss. Right. And usually they're right. Right, exactly. Well, runaways and, like I said, runaways, prostitutes, transients, right? That's probably 80% of serial killer victims. But I'm telling you, those John Douglas books, you you know, he's kind of humble, John Douglas. Like, he talks very openly about, like, he thinks that they they didn't get many of them. Like, a lot of them either stopped on their own Mm -hmm. or they got arrested for something else, you know, and they were in jail and it just kind of stopped on its own. But he thinks that, that, you know, that the ones they got, they got really lucky. Yeah. I should go back and read those books. I had them all laying around somewhere. I think I, I think he had like four or five books 
I think he wrote those books with a guy named Mark Olshaker. Was he the same guy who goes who co-wrote Shatner's books? Maybe. I don't know. Um, anyway, we should wrap up because we're maybe running. not. Maybe not. Yeah, and we're talking this about is our long, We managed to squeeze <laughs> Star Trek in again. This is our longest one, I think, so we should probably. <laughs> all right. It's um, all right. I guess I'm up. Uh, let me think of a movie for next week, and uh, we'll be back. This was a good podcast. Yeah. I enjoyed this one. Good, next good week, CSI here. Miami. <laughs> Starring Caratop. <laughs> right. We'll just we'll make sure to have some. We'll, we'll uh, have to link some um, YouTube videos of the watermelon and the mallet. I think Carrot Top is in CSI Vegas. <laughs> Actually, I'd rather see Carrot Top. Come to think of it, and <laughs> you know, I haven't seen Carrot Top's show. We're we're totally off the rails now, but it's okay because we're getting. He has podcast, a lot of plastic surgery, by the way. Now, every time you fly into Vegas, there's a big sign saying like "Voted Best Show," "Voted Number One Comedian." Like I haven't seen it, but they say the guy's pretty. Well, he's funny. like a he's like a cyborg at this point, by the way, because he's he's like ninety. And his skin has been stretched back about six feet. But he has a painting in his he has a painting in his house of old carrot top. <laughs> Alright. On that note, All see right. you next time. Alright, All right, thanks. thanks.